Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, October 11th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, folks, don't look now, but it's earnings palooza. Yes. That's right. Earnings season gets underway this week, which means we're excited and we're going to be hearing from a lot of banks here in the next few days. Joining me this week for a preview of it all, he's your friend and mine. It's CFP, Certified Financial Planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Good. I, I, was, I was just kidding you about you not referring to me as guest anymore, but I, I like the <laughs> my friend is here. Well, I mean, listen, if we're not friends, then, then what are we? You know? <laughs> exactly. Come on. <laughs> We're all friends at the, exactly. the Motley Fool. Exactly. Uh, Matt, it is that time of year again, right? This is this is the week that kicks everything off. Earnings season is getting underway here. And we've, uh, as, as every quarter, we've got the big banks leading the way. Uh, we have got uh, J.P. Morgan uh, starting it off on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll have Bank of America, Wells Fargo, City. Uh, and then, th- uh, what, Friday, we have Goldman Sachs. I mean, there's a lot on tap here for, for these five. And, and they really they really do, I think, reveal a lot of clues as to uh, ha- you know how the economy is performing and, and what we might be able to look for uh, this coming earnings season, or this coming holiday season, rather, um, and, and earnings season, of course. Uh, but, but first, let's, let's take a look back at these banks just a quarter ago uh, to, to, to see what was going on then, talk a little bit about what, what they, they reported a, co- a quarter ago and, and how that might uh, impact or dictate what we're looking out for this coming quarter. Let's start with J.P. Morgan. Uh, it, it, what last quarter, what, what were the takeaways from last quarter's earnings that you feel uh, you want to keep focused on here as, as we go into earnings season? Well, I still clearly remember that they started earnings season off kind of with a bang last year. Uh, they're always the first one to report. That's the same this year or this season. Um, they report on Wednesday. All these other banks report Thursday or Friday. Um, deposits are the main, and you'll see this kind of a theme uh, throughout the discussion today. Deposits were up kind of across the board in the second quarter compared to the year before. You often see uh, consumer savings rates go up in times of uncertainty. And the past year was pretty pretty uncertain. Um, so JP Morgan's deposit was j- deposit base was up 25% in the second quarter year over year. That's pretty impressive growth being that we're talking about sums like in the, the trillion dollar range. Um, cl- it's client investment assets were up 36%. Um, and JP Morgan's loans were down another common theme among these banks, their loan port, their consumer loan portfolio was down 3% year over year. Because people were borrowing less money. There were less major purchases people needed to finance. There was more cash flowing in, in the form of stimulus and and things to that effect. So deposits up, loans down. But JP Morgan's revenue was down by 7% year over year, mainly fueled by lower interest rates and kind of a normalization in trading revenue is kind of the best way I could put it. Um, And the best recent news story I found Jamie Dimon still does not like Bitcoin. Jason will be relieved <laughs> to know gonna, that. I was going to ask you about that because that was something I, I had read uh, a little bit earlier, and I mean that's that's nothing new. He's of course we know he's he's a relative skeptic there, but it it 
you know, his take on like, listen, I mean, there's, he said there's no intrinsic value. And then furthermore, he just expects it to be regulated to, to no end. Yeah. I definitely see the regulation side of the, the equation. I mean, they're, they're just starting to ramp up um, regulation. So if, if people like Elizabeth Warren are all over these banks that have regulatory, like all these requirements they have to meet, how do you think people like her are going to react to, to a decentralized finance financial tool with trillions of dollars of money behind it, just kind of, you know, it, and Bitcoin's known to be used for fraud. It's not like a, a Wells Fargo where there's like some level of, of shady business going on. Bitcoin's known as a kind of a tool for fraudsters. Um, so, so that really, I think, is going, I think the market's really underestimating the pressure that U.S. regulators are going to put on Bitcoin. Did you notice too? I mean, I don't know if you caught this a little while back, but I did see this headline. I think it was back in June or July. Um, it looked like it looks like at least that J.P. Morgan. So you know, Amazon and J.P. Morgan partner for their Prime uh, for the Prime credit card. And I just did notice that it sounds like it sounds like the J.P. Morgan Chase they're getting ready to forego that relationship and and they were uh looking at it looks like Amazon was accepting uh you know bids to take over that credit card relationship American Express being one Synchrony Financial another uh I, and I haven't really seen anything materialize since then but I just I found that kind of interesting given that we know I mean there, there's around 50 billion dollars a year gets spent on that card uh, it is it is a meaningful it is a meaningful tool uh to to see J.P. Morgan willing to bow out and, and forego that relationship. I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I don't know if you had seen anything about that lately, if you had any thoughts on that. Well, first, uh, J.P. Morgan has a massive credit card business. I mean, Amazon's obviously a big part of it, but they have a massive credit card business. They would be okay if Amazon wasn't their credit card partner anymore. I got to wonder if Amazon may, might have made J.P. Morgan a little mad by the, how much they're prioritizing the buy now, pay later. Uh, remember, we saw that uh, we talked about their partnership with a firm to let people finance Amazon purchases pretty easily. Um, so, I, And we mentioned that could be billions of dollars in revenue for a firm, and that's revenue out of J.P. Morgan's uh, credit card pocket. So I, I maybe maybe they made J.P. Morgan a little mad with that. I don't know. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's certainly those those relationships become more and more difficult um, as as the I mean the the co branding cards I mean they typically result in these robust rewards and cashback programs it just I, you know ultimately it becomes a little bit more difficult for J P Morgan to, to make money on that deal when you have to shell out those rewards um, uh, and, and so maybe that maybe that does play into it given Amazon's penchant for uh, being so customer centric I mean you clearly they would want a very robust rewards program for the card maybe J P Morgan just feels you know like just the juice ain't worth the squeeze anymore. Yeah, it, it's I I got to I have to think that Amazon, you know, they get some sort of favorable revenue split compared to other credit card partners, um, just because of their size. Kind of like how Costco can get a better deal from Visa than, than any other merchant can, just because of the enormity of the the purchase volume that goes on those cards. I have to think that maybe Amazon's getting some sort of favorable revenue deal that that uh, Chase doesn't want to pay anymore. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I'd imagine so. I mean, I'd there's a lot imagine- we don't know that happens behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting relationship there for sure. Uh, but let's take a look at Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, it, it, and we'll start with Bank of America. I mean, clearly it, uh, a very very well run bank. Brian Moynihan, I, I 
I've said before, I mean, when you talk about these bank CEOs, I mean, Jamie Dimon's the one that stands out, but to me, Brian Moynihan's like 1B, right? Like, he's he's right there, uh, given what he's done with this business uh, to, to date here. What what uh, stood out last quarter with Bank of America that's that, uh, that that's going to dictate what you're paying attention to this quarter? Well, again, common themes. Deposits are up. We're up 21% year over year in the second quarter. Loans were down 11% quarter, uh, year over year, which is you know, it's a pretty substantial decline. Um, a couple of uh, things to note with Bank of America, net interest income was down 6% year over year. That was the bulk of their revenue decline. Um, and the reason is what happened between the second quarter of last year and now, interest rates plunged to record lows. That's great if you're a consumer. Jason and I both refinanced our mortgage and we were happy to see rates plunge to record lows, but it's not great if you're a bank. Um, on the other side of things, uh, defaults are not nearly as bad as the banks thought they would be, and they were get, they've been getting better. Um, bank of America's net charge-off rate fell from 0.45% in the second quarter of last year steadily to 0.27% this year uh, in the second quarter. So pretty big decline in charge-offs. That's something I'm going to be watching that I'll mention uh, later when we talk about our big long list of things that we're watching with bank earnings. Um, another thing I'm watching with Bank of America, and this is actually a positive story. I mentioned banks are seldom in the news for positive reasons, but this is one of them. Uh, Bank of America just raised its minimum wage to $21 an hour, um, and they are planning to ra- incrementally raise that to $25 an hour by 2025. They have been at the forefront of of paying living wages as far as the banking industry goes for years now. I, I mean, I'm wondering if that cuts into their to their profits in a significant way, or on the other hand, if it lets them provide better customer service and is more of a competitive advantage because they're retaining their their employees and making their employees happy. So I'm curious to see where that kind of where that goes over the long term. And I, and if um if Brian Moynihan makes any comments about it during the conference call. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Wells Fargo has had uh, a great year so far. You know, I was looking at a chart of all of these banks earlier, looking at Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, comparing them to the market year to date. They're all actually outperforming the market as of today, year to date. And uh, you look at who's standing at the top of the list there, Matt. And and listen, I mean, we gotta we gotta give you a shout out here because it's Wells Fargo. At, at around 60% return so far year to date, and and the reason why I want to want to pinpoint I want to shine a light on that is just because, again, going back to the beginning of the year, I mean Wells Fargo was your financial stock of the year, right? I mean we were talking about what was the stock you felt like investors really should have an eye on for this coming year in the financial space, and you picked Wells Fargo, uh, beaten down, recognizing that it was potentially a value trap, but you saw actually probably a better value play. So far, seems to be working out well. Oh, for sure. Um, Wells Fargo looked like it It was heading for disaster at the end of last year. Uh, it, not only were, was the bank facing all this regulatory scrutiny for all their past bad behavior, but it was really unknown whether or not they would have a bunch of defaults that they couldn't deal with. Because remember, Wells Fargo is the most consumer-facing of the four big banks. Um, but it looks like they've avoided a worst-case scenario, which is really why they've performed so well. Um, and the numbers look pretty solid. They were actually one of the ba- the few banks to increase revenue in the second quarter year over year. And a big reason for that is they released a lot of their loan loss reserves. I mentioned they were really worried about um, increasing credit losses. 
that didn't really materialize. So they were able to release $1.6 billion in the second quarter. That really fueled their earnings. It fueled their return on equity, things like that. Non-interest income is up 37% year over year because of that reserve release. Net interest income was down 11% year over year, which is pretty bad. Um, I mentioned interest rates went to record lows. Most consumer-facing bank in the business. What happens? Lower lower net interest income. Uh, as far as news stories, they've been under the microscope lately. There's really no way to put that nicely. Elizabeth Warren <laughs> recently asked the Fed to break up Wells Fargo. Wow. Um, it, they're, they're doing a good job of kind of moving on and going with the flow. They announced a new credit card product recently, announced that they're going to really focus on their digital strategy, which is something that they had not been doing very well in the, under previous administration. So I'm, I'm still positive on Wells Fargo, but it's going to be an interesting quarter to watch, see how they do. What about Citibank? Um, you've got Citigroup here uh, reporting that the stock has done uh, okay, I'd say, so far this year. It's the laggard of the bunch, though, um, just kind of matching the market pretty much. Uh, what, 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 uh, what will you be watching out for there? Well, they had by far the worst revenue decline in the second quarter of the big four. Uh, revenue was down 12% year over year. A lot of that was because of, of much worse weakness than expected in trading revenue, especially in fixed income trading. Uh, remember, Citi, Citigroup is one of the banks where a lot of their revenue is in investment banking. But just like the other banks, we saw deposits up um, in retail banking. Deposits were up 17% year over year. Loans were actually up 3% year over year in Citi's retail division, which kind of went against the trend. And Citi, I think even more so than J.P. Morgan Chase, is a credit card dependent bank. I know oh, they yeah. are, um, for example, they are American Airlines partner. Uh, Citi is, uh, I believe, Costco's retail partner, which is a big account. Um, Citi issues a lot of big uh, Best Buy. Uh, my Best Buy card is issued through Citi. They're, they are the the retail partner for a lot of major credit card operations. Costco alone, I, I'm pretty sure, is bigger than Amazon's credit card partnership because it's That's the only card one. they accept there. That's a big one. Um, so it's it's a, it's a big one. So um, I'm really curious to see how their credit losses are holding up. Remember, uh, I said the big industry trend is credit losses were down across the board. I want to see if that holds up. But all in all, I, I City they have a lot to gain if things start going well in the economy. What about Goldman Sachs on Friday talking uh, talking about investment banks? And I mean, clearly, this is one that uh, is is very uh, levered to that market. I mean, also a relationship with Apple, of course. Uh, what 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 uh, what's your take on Goldman? Well, remember, Goldman's still primarily an investment bank. Their their consumer division is growing quickly. That's their Apple card. Uh, they took over GM's card business, a few others. Goldman is primarily an investment bank, and their first qu- first half was one for the record books. Literally, um, it was the they had their record revenue in the first half. They had the second best revenue of all time in the second quarter, only second to the first quarter. So they're having a phenomenal start to the year. They're trading for something like twelve times their first half earnings. Um, that's an incredibly low valuation, twenty seven percent return on equity in the first half. Their investment banking revenue was just off the charts. You got to think it was kind of a, a positive, perfect storm for investment banking. Merger, merger, uh, M&A activity was kind of off the charts. IPO activity was off the charts. And there was a lot of market volatility, which was great for their trading operation. So they just kind of got the, the best of all these worlds. 
Their their uh, assets under supervision are higher than they've ever been, more than two point three trillion dollars. So um, Goldman's just really fi- been firing on all cylinders. So I don't think they're going to have a, a record third quarter. Um, just it wasn't. I mean, the the M and A activity wasn't really as as high as it had been in the first half. IPO activity kind of dropped off a little bit. You know, the SPAC boom died out. That's where they made a lot of their investment banking money in the first half. So I'm, I'm, this is one that I'm most curious about out of the five, just because it's really it's the most unpredictable. Trading revenue is inherently kind of unpredictable. Yeah, it's lumpy. And then, and then you have all the other parts of their investment banking business that are really kind of – it's tough to say how much of the – how badly the M&A part got hit, for example, or the IPO um, – the equity underwriting, which is that part of the business, how, how badly that got hit. There's just a lot of moving parts, and they're all really unpredictable. Well, let's uh, turn our attention, though, then to the the uh, the upcoming quarter here. Uh, and starting on Wednesday, we're going to get a slew of reports and uh, what what you know what forward looking. Let's take a, take a forward looking perspective here and, and talk a little bit about big picture. Generally speaking, uh, we're not going to go one by one through each bank, but generally speaking, what are some of the big picture trends you're looking out for here? What, what are you What are you expecting? Well, for one, I want to see how all these loan deposit and all that num- these numbers compare to a more normal quarter. The second quarter of 2020 was not normal. That was when the world was kind of like in complete disarray, and everyone, no one knew what to make of the pandemic. So, the second quarter of 2021 wasn't the best comparison year over year. So you're going to see a more apples to apples comparison when it comes to things like loan growth, deposit growth or decline. Um, I'm also looking at the effect of interest rates because interest rates have started to tick upward in the past few months. That's part. That's one of the big reasons that the tech sector has performed so poorly, and that can be a positive for banks. So I want to see if net interest income might have not normalized, but have has ticked upward a little bit during the second during the third quarter. Um, JP Morgan and Citigroup, I'll be watching the credit card business pretty closely. Um, I want to see the charge-off numbers, if they keep heading in the right direction or if there's something to be concerned about. I think we might be might actually get a few more reserve releases this quarter. Oh, yeah. Um, remember, that was a big trend in the second quarter. Yeah. Um, I want to see what the CEOs have to say about the office return. Because if you remember the, the uh, banking sector, all these CEOs were the most kind of gung-ho out of any industry about the return to the office. Jamie Dimon especially said, I want my employees in the office. And then they all ended up delaying their office return because of the the um, the Delta surge. So I want to see if what they have to say about that. And I want to see what's going on with trading revenue and just investment banking in general. Because like I just mentioned with Goldman Sachs, it's probably the least predictable part of these. So um, that's what I'll be watching. Yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking of too, and, and it's just because we've seen this word so much lately. Uh, running throughout the financial headlines, it's inflation, right? I mean, inflation, uh, something that we're hearing more and more about, and we talk about it on this show clearly, of course. And I just went back through each call, uh, each transcript for these five banks to, to see last quarter, what was the language like for inflation? Were they talking about it even? Or was it a was it a point of focus? And if you, if you look through these calls, it was really interesting. So Goldman Sachs, the word was mentioned three times. Citigroup, it was mentioned two times. Wells Fargo, the word inflation was never even mentioned on the call. Granted, I think they probably a bigger fish to fry than that. <laughs> uh, Bank of America just once, but here this was this was kind of fascinating. J.P. Morgan fourteen times, 
So that was kind of an outlier there. But I feel like maybe with J.P. Morgan, I don't know, and, and maybe you feel differently here, but if, if I look at all of these banks, of these five, to me, the J.P. Morgan call is the one that I get the most information from. That's that's the one I value more uh, than any of the others. It feels to me like they they talk just a bit more about big picture stuff uh, than than perhaps the other ones. The other ones are, are a bit more, like you said. I mean, you've got City, which is credit card specific. Goldman, very investment banking, you know, investment banking focus. Uh, J.P. Morgan seems to be a little bit of it all, and maybe that's why that's the case. Yeah, it's like Jamie Dimon's calls are kind of like Warren Buffett's in the sense that no one listens yeah. to Buffett's report, or no one listens to Buffett's call to hear what he thinks about what Berkshire Hathaway's doing. Yeah, they listen to him because they want to know what he thinks about the the market in general, or like you said, inflation or any of these other things. So uh, yeah, Jamie Dimon is the most relevant, regardless of what stock you're invested in. Um, I mean, I pay close attention to Bank of America's because it's one of my big positions. But, J- but no, JP Morgan, it's relevant to all investors, even if you're not really invested in banks, because it's that much that it's that insightful just on what's going on in the economy in general. Well, that's a lot of good stuff there, Matt. I, uh, I think our listeners will agree as well. And uh, of course, as, as always, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to dig in and uh, jump on the show uh, today. It's not my guest. He's my friend. He's my partner in crime. <laughs> it's, it's Matt Frankel. Thanks again, Matt. Of course. Always good to be here. And that'll do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus, or you can drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.